BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Price. It's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is David Frangioni, CEO and publisher of Modern Drummer Magazine. So excited about our new podcast, The Modern Drummer Podcast. This weekly podcast will bring Modern Drummer to life. Sit back and enjoy fresh, fun, and insightful conversations with today's top drummers, producers, musicians, beat makers, and craftsmen. Whether you're a professional, a hobbyist, drummer, musician, programmer, producer, or just love music, This show is for you. Every other week, the Modern Drummer Podcast will feature world-renowned producer, songwriter, and drummer, Narda Michael Walden. Narda Michael Walden's Upbeat is featured exclusively on the Modern Drummer Podcast. (laughs) 
You mean oh, the yeah. guy? Oh yeah, Will. I miss so much. Hey, beautiful dude. A lot of folks don't know you play bass on this jam. Take me, take me, take me, take me to the garden. He's the man of his first album, my bro. Thank you. I love you so much, man. I love you, know, you so much. You're the cat, man. Anyway. You are such an understated uh, musician's <laughs> musician that I forget that you have piano chops. And it's, <laughs> it makes me mad because I'm so jealous. You know, when you were mapping out these tunes for us, you weren't sitting there showing off your piano chops. You had written all that stuff on piano, right? I, I write on piano, but I don't write it out. I, have, I just communicate it, yeah. But it's just great. It's just great. I mean, but you know, I think that what you probably came to realize in the end, and this is always the way I've I've always thought, yeah, that the great communicators are the drum and the voice. Wow. Right? Whew. Since way back, since smoke yes. signal time. No, yes, brother. Smoke signal. Smoke signal. <laughs> so are Those you are the great communicators? Are you in Paris? No, but we're in the south, the south of France. You're in south of France. Yeah, how do you feel? I mean, how's it feel there? Well, first of all, bottom line is we're grateful to be alive yes. these days, you know, yes. and uh, we're grateful to be out of wildfire zones and we feel for you and we know what you've been through. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it's where that's concerned. Yes. So it's, it's a whole, there's a lot of gratitude these days. Right. Going around. That's right. You know. And it's and it's based on some real basic stuff, being alive. That's right. And what a huge gift and what a thing that is. Yes, brother. Yes, brother. Yeah. Yes. So let's, you're a let's, part. Uh, happy Papa. I am. I am. I have a God, man. I have a six-year-old named Kelly. I have a five-year-old yes, named Kayla, and I have a two-year-old boy named Michael who's beating on the damn drums. <laughs> All right. So you we know, know what's happening. We can see we can see a pattern developing in your home, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Dancing, yeah. singing, playing the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let, let, let's let's go back to um uh, to Florida. You know, to to your your early upbringing. Can you tell us about what it was like <clears throat> being raised in Florida, and what happened to you as a kid to make you who you are now? Just start there, if you don't mind. Well, let me just tell you really straight ahead and yeah. super frank and honest about yeah. my beginnings. I'm from Texas. Okay. And I started there until I was 11. Okay. And while we were there, my parents were, were probably, probably the oddest people in the town of Huntsville, Texas. Okay. Because Huntsville, Texas being a, I don't even know how to describe it. Cause you know, it's funny cause you go between having learned perspective versus what felt like home and normal at the time. And now you realize how, how awful and screwed up the world is and was then. It was very segregated. There were no dark skinned people in any of my classes that I remember meeting ever. Okay. You know, and it was very like, you know, here's, here's the water fountain for you people. And here's the water fountain for you people, that kind of thing. It was very much like that. And it's a prison town on top of it. It's the state, Department of Corrections is in that town. Okay, so that's like the backdrop of what my dad and mom were up to. They were jazzers. Oh, dad was okay. a, a bebop piano player who had 
gone from being a trumpet player, but yeah. because of tuberculosis, had to switch over. And, uh, you know, it's a funny thing. It's, it's like there's so much history, but he was in the Fourth Army Band, and we were, he was very close with a guy named Vito Farinelli, who we know as Vic Damone. Oh, yeah, of course. And that's my godfather. Okay. <laughs> he right? married that beautiful, beautiful black lady. Uh... Diane Carroll. Ooh. Oh, stunning. Yeah. Ridiculously beautiful. Yeah. So now my parents, uh, in spite of everybody around us in that town, were totally into jazz. And they didn't think like everybody else was thinking in that town. You know, so it's interesting that my father landed in that town because he was head of the music department in the other institution of that town besides the prison, which was Sam Houston State Teachers College, okay. you know, and he did such a great job that the University of Miami tapped him and said, hey, man, we love what you did with that school. Can you do that for the University of Miami? Wow. So he went down and built a faculty and the whole thing. And that's why we ended up in Florida. Okay. See, so, I, yeah, I, never so my knew, house was, I never knew the Texas hookup. Yeah, my, my house was full of jazz the entire time. And right. still would be if my parents were, were alive. Now, you know, now, now it's a little more varied because we love jazz as much as we ever did. But we also, you and I have stretched out into all kinds of areas of music. Oh, yeah. You know. So then when you went to Florida, was that a big change for you then? It was a really big change. We were like the Beverly Hillbillies. You know, we ain't never seen no palm trees before. We need a palm tree. The Miami and palm what? <laughs> it was bizarre, man. Huh? Yeah. Coconuts. <laughs> Count me in. Okay. It was like that. Right. <clears throat> so then, okay, tell me about your um. Tell me about your schooling. Were you were you uh, early on a bass player? Were you early on starting to play the bass and carry on? I was a drummer for. A good, a good while. But since we were so young, you remember that the bass guitar back in 1964, 65 was a very still young instrument. Yeah, that's right. Right? And yeah. so kids my age, 11, they didn't know from bass. They, weren't, they were thinking guitars, drums, guitars, drums, tennis racket, guitar, drums, broomstick, guitar, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. They were just going through the motions, but... The idea of what a function of the function of a bass was was a little sophisticated for eleven-year-old brains, but <clears throat> having put it together a little band, we knew. Oh, Sandrine's here. Oh, hi. Hey, hey Sandrine. Hi. 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 Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Good to see you, honey. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that this everything was good. Oh. Okay. Have fun. Love you so much, and love your Thank artwork. You. I want the whole world to know to support your great uh, um, um, oh. photographs and and and. Deeply romantic work. Thank Deeply you. Deeply romantic. Uh, thank yeah. you. It's great to see you. You look fantastic. Yeah, good to see you. Oh, I love you too. You look great. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll let you get back to All right, to baby. <laughs> you did? Anyway. So uh, we were doing the, the Florida thing and, and, you know, the excitement of the Beatles was, was kicking everybody in the butt. You know, you got you to gotta play music. This is, this is how it's going to work out. You're going to, you're going to play some music. Girls are going to scream and you're going to be happy. Mm -hmm. and, you know, so everybody was gravitating towards trying to see if they had enough talent to do music. So can, should we try a band? So I had a, I had a drum kit that my dad had gotten me and I was really excited to put together myself and, and a couple of other guys 
we got our first gig making six bucks a piece at a Catholic youth organization, outdoor gig at Matheson Hammock Park in, in Coral Gables or Miami, Florida. Mm-hmm. After a while, it got to be like, well, you know, we, we got this thing happening. Wouldn't it be more fun to sound a little bit more professional and get a bass player? But there was nobody our age doing that. So I said, look, I'll just switch over to play bass and we'll get another guy to do drums. Mm-hmm. Big mistake. <laughs> I was the lead singer in that band. And it was really hard to play patterns, you know what I mean? As opposed to just a solid straight, mm-hmm. straight time and, and still deliver a, a lyric. So that was a big wake-up call. Right. But it was too late to go back because our drummer that we had gotten, got us, his dad got us our first gig. So we couldn't kick him out. Okay, great. <laughs> so great. I stuck with it. So it's, it's really good you learned uh, your independency to be able to sing and play early on because that's, that's what your whole life is doing now, playing and singing. Listen, every time you, for me, every time I, I, I learn a new piece of music, as a bass player and singer, I have it's like going back to square one each time, because you gotta you gotta learn like this part, so it becomes second nature, mm-hmm. so you can deliver the message. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I want to say for our <coughs> listeners out here. Uh, I've had the, the great pleasure of playing uh, at least 10, 11, 12, if not thirteen shows with you at Carnegie Hall, and recently at the Beacon Theater for the Rainforest shows. Just to start there, and you always give me a sense of like solidarity. You always give me a sense of like, I'm going to sound really good because you're so good. And now I'm realizing because you're a drummer too, is why you're also got that innate hookup in the rhythm pocket. Because no matter what I do, you're right there with me. And, and I want people to know that about you. I mean, we do know that, but I want I want to say that to you. You make me feel you. good. You make me look good having you there. And uh, I think that's that's part of what you're talking about, man. Coming from the drums, learning how to do what you do and love it so deeply. There's a passion that just burns about you. We love. Anything you want to say about that? Well, I think it all goes back to those those beginning years before I even knew what music was. And, mm-hmm. and my parents were blasting miles and, and great jazz yeah. through their sound system at home for their parties and stuff. Because the first sound I ever remember hearing is Miles' muted, you know, Harmon mute. And... And the band that was behind them <clears throat> was always the best guys. And no matter what kind of music we're talking about, as, as far as it's music with, with a groove, and that's most of the music that I love and most, most of the music that we both are involved in always, right, is groove-based music, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that I got a sense of what a good groove feels like in your body from before I even knew what I was doing, mm-hmm. you know? And I think if a kid has a, a jazz background, especially, they can really get a sense of not only what a great groove is supposed to feel like, mm-hmm. but also the sense of what interplay is all about. Ensemble playing, you know, because right. that's what's happening inside jazz. You know, all that improv and all that stuff and people reacting and but, but with the solid sense of where one is all the time. Mm-hmm. I think that can filter over into like every kind of music. Okay, I'm going to push you a little bit more, Will. Your childlike spirit always comes through. Speak about your childlike spirit. You're you're not an old man. You're a young cat. I don't know what it is. Eternally young, man. All I can say is 
And I've always felt this way about the lowliest gigs, you know, if there is such a thing, some people say, oh, this is a crap gig, I'm getting out of here, you know. <laughs> to me, it's always a great gig because I feel like if I'm playing music, this is the place to be. I don't know what that is, but that feels like that to me every time. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, and when I say those situations, I'm always thinking about playing with other people. And I think that there's something really spiritually whole about playing and communicating with other humans. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. In a way, that's kind of my religion, is that connection. I came to New York one time to do something and just would call you spontaneously. You said, well, come on down tonight. I'm going to be playing on this this club with Chris Parker. So I came in there, and there you were, man, just like on fire in this club with Chris Parker, Doing a Brecker Brothers, just rocking this club. It's like, damn, this guy loves music. You just love music, man. You know what that is. I do know, but but I don't (laughs) want you to talk about it because people don't understand. Yeah, we love music. No. This cat, I mean, you will go to all those shows. You will play all those shows. You look at at your, your discography, all the things you played on and you show up for. You are disciplined, bro. You are very. I'm a hoe. I'm a hoe when it comes to music. I don't want to say it. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to say it. That's all there is to it. Give me a gig. <laughs> no, it's funny, man. If I'm not on a gig, it's like, why am I not on that gig? It's like that. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should be on that gig. Yeah, yeah. Now, anyway. did you, in Florida, did you meet? Hiram Bullock in Florida? or I did accidentally because I guess, you know, no matter what we're talking about, it's always, you know, you can't plan these things. But I walked into a club one night. I I came down from New York on a little visit. And and my sisters had been freaks about uh, um, Phyllis Hyman. They, they kept telling me, Phyllis this, Phyllis that. We're going to go down the Checkmate Lounge. She's playing the night. We're going to be there. We're going to catch every set, every note. And they come back high as a kite. Mm-hmm. So I've been hearing about Phyllis for a while. Well, I'm up here in New York. You know, a lot of things were happening in Florida after I left. You came on the scene down there. People started talking about, oh, man, you got to check this Michael Walden guy out. You know, um, Jocko. You know, that that was right after I left. People at Jocko, you know, there was just in the air. The Jocko, Jocko, what about Jocko? What is that? Mm-hmm. You know, I missed it because I left right before he came on the scene. But Phyllis was another thing that was happening after I got up to New York that cats were really talking about. Really, the buzz was happening. So I had to go check it out. So I'll go down to, to this, I think it was the Doral Hotel, Miami Beach. And they were doing a, a show, her show, and the band was like, I think Frank Gravis, uh, Hiram, maybe Bill Bowker and, and Clifford Carter. Yes, my cats. That was the band. Mm-hmm. In fact, all those guys, just about all those guys, came up to New York with Phyllis and stayed. That's why they're in New York, because mm-hmm. she wanted to go to New York. And they were her band, so they are going to New York, and they stayed. So that was... Uh, you know, I'm in the audience and I'm watching these guys and they asked me to sit in that night, which was a blast. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, being a guy from radio, doing a lot of radio, I hit the mute button. Okay. 
Did you hear that? I did. I did. <laughs> oh, you did? No, I, I mean, I heard you, you know, oh. take, take it away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we just had a big cheesy French meal. <clears throat> okay. Anyway, so the guys were on fire. They were burning, you know. Phyllis already is just like the huge star that she was. She was just on, she was killing the music. So sophisticated, had all the R&B and jazz chops you could ever want and a gorgeous sound behind it, you know, just driving it. And her spirit was unbelievable too. Yeah. So there was this incredible band and that was the first time I got a chance to hear Hiram Bullock play. And it was pretty unbelievable. It was a real wake up call, you know. And then when he finally came to New York, it's like, wow, maybe I can get a chance to play with this guy once in a while, you know? And sure enough, he joined the Brecker Brothers. He came in on the Brecker Brothers band. Damn. So uh, there was a, because you guys, I always think of you as soul connection with Hiram. A soul fire with Hiram. Totally. Yeah. There was a total connection there. And, yeah. you know, I always tried to get him to, you know, guys are funny. Guys are like too embarrassed to say, I love you, right? And there was I, a I love there. I love you, there. Will. I love I love you, Will. <laughs> I have to say that, man. Okay. <clears throat> Most guys, I should say. Okay. Anyway, okay. hey, how about those? Uh, how about those Niners? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, you know that, that's 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 like that's like heterosexual men making love. You know, hey, did you catch that 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 uh, field goal? <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Hiram and I always had this love, and he was so funny about it. I, I once kind of cornered him and I said, "Hey, man." play with every musician in the world just about but there's something that happens when I play with you what do you think that is you know I'm kind of fishing for him to say I love you mm -hmm. right in a way <clears throat> instead he says well because people like to see two big guys up there <laughs> that's what he said so that's how he dealt with that mm -hmm. okay okay two big guys I still don't know what it was that made us click but you know it's, there was love in there somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me let me go to this this side. Uh, the first time I actually hear you really get down, and I go, "Ooh, it's you and Billy Cobham with Dreams." Hmm. Damn. It was like a new height. You set a new standard. That's why I was in New York. Because of Dreams. Speak about it. Go ahead. Okay. So, I'm at the. In, take, uh, taking courses at University of Miami, I'm in the big band, I'm in the, the A band, just beginning to, to, uh, to play bass in school because I had gotten talked into majoring on bass by a guy who, who was the assistant dean. Even My father was the dean, and the assistant dean, uh, Ted Kreger, said, look, man, I've been checking out your playing, and I think you should major on bass. I was messing, I didn't know what I was doing. I came in as a French horn major, and it was just, my grades were really bad. And he could see that I was flunking and he was trying to help me out. He said, why don't you major on bass? I said, you can do that? You know, I didn't know you could even do that. Because the bass, as we were saying, was a young instrument still. And it was kind of a new concept because the bass teachers everywhere were legitimate upright guys and all that stuff, you know. So, um, because I was... I was going to college and studying jazz in the daytime and six nights a week, six sets a night, I was playing in clubs, rock and roll, top 40 type stuff. Okay. 
and I was into it. I loved it all. I, you know, I still do. I love commercial music. I love top 40. I love jazz. I love all this stuff. I love when rock guys think I'm a jazz guy. I love when the jazz guys say, oh, he's a rocker. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I love that because mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so the, uh, the uh, sort of split lifestyle I was having was jazz in the day, rocking at night kind of thing, right? And then these bands were coming out on Columbia Records, Chicago, Blood, Sweat and Tears. And there was this one particular band that was super interesting to me, and that was Dreams. Because they had Mike Brecker, Randy Brecker. They had Billy Cobham. Yeah, my God. I mean, these guys were from Neptune. You know, what the heck? What what is this music? You know, I couldn't get enough of it. And, and, And likewise, the people that surrounded me were just as into it as I was. So I thought that they were the next biggest band. I thought they were the next Beatles, basically, you know, because what could be bigger? These, these guys were all wearing out copies of this Dreams album on our stereo systems. You know, come over, excuse to get together, you know, let's listen to Dreams on my new, my new turntable, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we were eating it up. We were wearing out copies of, of that first album because nobody, nobody had ever heard anything like it, you know. And surrealistically, one day I'm, I'm in school, I'm on, taking this big band class or whatever you want to call it, the big band, re- we're rehearsing. And somebody slaps a piece of paper on top of my bass amp that says, call Randy Brecker, 212, blah, blah, blah. Group. And it was so out of context, I couldn't remember why I'd heard that name, Randy Brecker. What's 212? That's, that's a New York area code, New York City area code. And um, I, when I dawned on me who it was, I got to the phone as fast as I could. <laughs> I called up. <clears throat> His girlfriend answered the phone. She, she said, yeah, they want to audition you for Dreams. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. That can't be possible. You know, mm-hmm. it's just too surreal. Turns out there had been a guy that came down to guest lecture at our uh, arranging class. And he went back up and told the Breckers, who at the time, were he knew they were looking for a new bass player because they had fired the original guy, and Chuck Rainey was the current guy, but he was about to leave. Okay. Thank God I'd never heard of Chuck Rainey. Exactly. If I had, <laughs> yeah, I would have said, no, no, man, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> Hung up the phone on him. But luckily, I was in the clear. Ignorance is bliss. I go up, and they put music in front of me at the audition. And this was wild. And I walk into this room and there's cases on either side of the room. Miles Davis, Santana, Johnny Winter. I'm like, oh God, what kind of a surreal world have I entered here? You know, this is a rehearsal place where everybody worked on their music. And this is where Dreams was auditioning me. And I walk in the room, they put a big bunch of music in front of me. I said, guys, I'm not sure if I'm going to need this music. Why don't you just count it off and see what happens? And that's when they saw that I knew their music backwards and wow. forward. Wow. Know? So you're our guy. You exactly. Know? You loved it. You knew it. You're in. That was my main focus for the longest time. You know, what are the chances of them finding me when they needed somebody? So that was an unbelievable thing that, you know, once that happened, I went to New York. I never looked back for a second. What was it like playing with Billy Cobham? Are you kidding? I'm asking you, because I want you to tell all these drummers out here, you know. 
the first word that comes to my mind is confidence. In fact, Billy was so easy to follow because he laid it down in a way that you couldn't, all, all arguments were off, you know. He just said, this is it. And you said, let's go, right? right? So when he laid it down, uh, what, what he did for dreams was he, he was such the clock for that band that he set up like everything that was about to happen. That, that band had a lot of, uh, it had songs, but it also had huge long improvisational sections in it, you know, and he would be the guy that would let you know when to change gears here. We're going to, we're going to do, we're, we're about to go into a thing. And now we're in the next channel. You know, we just changed channels on the TV set, right? We just changed, we just went to the next chapter of, of this song. And he was the guy that was setting all this up on the live gigs. So when he left to go do Mahavishnu, um, we ended up auditioning, I think 86 guys, maybe. <laughs> it was grueling. Ooh. And we hated everybody. We hated Steve Gadd. Mm, we hated Rick Morata. You know, we didn't hate him, but you know. Yeah, I got you. But they just weren't Billy. Mm -hmm. So after a while, the band ended up just folding. And I said, all right, that's it. I'm going to go back to Miami where I'll be king of everything. I've, I've been to New York and I've played with dreams. <laughs> and two friends said, oh, no, you're not, you're not leaving New York. You're going to stay here at our house. We're going to get you some work. I'm like, you're wrong. Really? Okay. And I think they got me some, I think I was a terrible house guest because they got me work really fast. Wow, man. You know, and next thing I know, I was like a studio guy. How do you do that? I want to speak to the people who don't really understand, Will, how intense this is, what you're speaking about. You know, we always say like that Frank Sinatra song, if I can make it in New York, I can make it anywhere. But it really is true. New York's intensity, if the rest of the world revolves at this tempo, at this speed, that New York revolves at this speed. So for you to speak about yes. making it in New York, like Frank Sinatra, I can make it anywhere, you had to jump in and stay at this revolution. You've done this for like many, many years now, surviving and, and keeping up a, a, a level of perfection almost in New York City. I mean, you know, I take my hat, I take my hat off to you, Will. I it do. is like a concentrated, uh, every day is like a concentration of days in a, in a row, in one day kind of. Mm -hmm. It's like you're, take, you're taking the, the Tropicana out of the freezer and you're not mixing it with any water, you're just drinking it straight, right out of the frozen can, right? right. And it feels like that whenever, I, whenever you get off a plane and you're, you're, you're getting into your car to get in, toward the city, you start to feel that energy like you're hopping on a ride that's already in motion. You just... You just now once you're on the ride, you feel the energy, and now that's what New York feels like. Beautiful. Beautiful. It's not laid back. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. So oh, you know what else was cool? Yeah, bro. About New York that I think is unique to that town, which maybe Nashville, you could say Nashville has it, but all of those studios were like right kind of next door to each other. Like in Midtown, they were like really close. So it'd be really easy to take a session. 10 to one, then you could take a one. You could, you could chance it and take a one o'clock and you'd probably be on time. Wow, cool. Basically, you just had to walk out the door, go to the next building. 
LA is not like that. No. LA is like drive. You gotta, <laughs> you know, but it's a, but it's also another kind of wonderfulness because you're now you got your, you've landed at the studio and you can really get inside the music because you're committing. You're there, you know, you're there. We're going to call it. We're going to get lunch brought in. We're here to stay for a while. You know? I have to, I have to be selfish to ask you a question about any memories you have of, of making the album Garden Love Light with Tommy Dow producing Raymond Gomez a guitar, uh, Davis Sanchez keyboards, Jeff Beck came to, came to play, Carlos Santana came to play, Mike Gibbs with strings. Any any memory of that 1976? Uh, it was it was kind of like it was kind of like this, you know. It was kind of like wow, these cats. I'm surrounded by a guy who I really want to make a good impression on, and that would be you. And you were just killing on the drums. You you know, you'd written these songs and you were so much fun to play with. And I just wanted to do a good job. You know, I wanted to try to rise to the occasion because there was Ray Gomez, you know, and you had Jeff Beck and Carlos on the record and, and the legend of legends, Tommy Dowd, behind the board. Yeah. You know, and this guy was such a treat to be with. He was, he was a great guy. I mean, he was, with all his brilliance, he was just, he loved hanging. He loved being around guys and he, he loved what the music, you know, he served the music, you know, that was my impression. Anyway, I'm, I'm assuming you enjoyed your time. Oh, very much so. And I learned so much, you know, and he would just be a teacher. Um, he was big on compression, teaching us about compression. He was big on saying, Ray Charles would say, don't use your eyes. You know, just, you, you know, close your eyes and use your ears. Mm. And then adjust mm. your, with your compression by using your ears, not your eyes. In other words, people get caught up looking at meters too much. You wanted to know, no, shut all that off. Just use your ears like Ray Charles. So, that, you know, like that. Also, That's I want to say one more thing about that, about the memory of that album. There's a middle section of a song called St. Le Rascal with Jeff Beck. And then you hit this pedal, which I had never heard before, where you go, that kind of a sound. I was like, damn, what are you doing? That was new. You take it for granted. But to people like me, we were like, who is this cat? And that's why I love you, because you come with these surprises, man. I mean, you like this funk, right? But then it's ultra funk. You got up into some ultra funk. I, I was fascinated by sounds, you know? And the guitar players had it. They had all this cool stuff, you know? They had like fuzz tones and things, you know, had to mess up with their sound. And I really wanted to not be limited to just my basic bass sound. I wanted to see where it could go. So I was really lucky. I started to get, to get a, a, a name for myself as being a guy who was into sounds and stuff. And <clears throat> you know the Electro Harmonics Company? Yes, I do. They made a, a record demonstrating a lot of their flangers and pedals and things way back when it, they actually made a vinyl record demonstrating their sounds and I got to really have some fun. They'd let me plug into anything I wanted to. And I was on the record and, you know, I helped them promote this, this, this huge line of pedals that they were, that they, that they make and still do. And they still make great and even better stuff these days. And, uh, you know, I started to be known as that guy a little bit because I loved everything about that changing it up and see what see what a groove would feel like with this sound see what a groove would feel like with that sound you know and also like you said a place to go 
in the music, if you're running out of notes and ideas, just hit the pedal, see what happens, you know? <laughs> That's honestly what was happening. So cool. I was cool. trying to bring something and I didn't have like a million chops, you know, I was just like, well, let me put some sound thing in. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And um, I remember one time I was living in my little apartment and Willie Weeks had heard about this, this, this bass player that was into pedals and stuff. So he wanted to come over and try everything. Right. And I had a kit in there and we jammed for hours. I just played a groove and he just went nuts on all the pedals. You know, I don't know if we ever, he never really took to it though. Okay. You know, he was curious, but he, it didn't do for him what it did for me to, mm -hmm. or to me. Okay. So because we got drummers who are watching us, Will, any advice you'd want to give to any drummers out in the world, you played with the best of the best, you worked with the best of the best, and, and at a high level. I mean, even, you know, you think about the, the early uh, uh, David Letterman shows with Stevie Jordan and all that stuff that you did. I mean, it's incredible. Anything you want to say to drummers at this time in the world? The only thing I can think of is, is you know, it's funny. Everybody has such a, a unique personality. Everybody. Everybody alive. So <clears throat> if you sit down in a kit and you sound like you, that's a really good thing. <laughs> you know, sure you idolize Narda, sure you idolize Billy, sure you idolize Ringo or you idolize Tommy Lee or whoever, the, whoever you like. And, you know, yes, emulate them and have fun being you know, in their shoes for a minute, but get out of those shoes and get into your own shoes because, you know, you know what I used to love doing is sitting with a set of headphones on in my loft. I had a soundproof room and I could play it any night, any, any time of day or night. I built it that way because I, I really had this urge to want to do that. And I put the phones on and I put on some earth, wind and fire. Okay. And I would just play along, man. And it was nothing more satisfying in life than playing along with, with Maurice's tracks. Wow. You know? Yeah. Oh, it was so good. Yes. Yes. So that's a fun thing to do if you want to just have fun. Just yes. do that. Put on some phones and rock it out. But then, okay, now, now let's go over here. Let's go over to now. Uh, you have a band, uh, the Fab Faux, and you love playing McCartney and Beatle music and keeping it really, really at a high level. So speak about that just for a second so we understand your love of Paul McCartney, your love of Beatles, and why you do that? Well, it, it's, it's funny because I really got my first ass kicking into music by the Beatles. No doubt about it. I give them credit. In fact, every, every session I ever did in the studio, the, word, the, the phrase in my mind would come up, what would the Beatles do here? You know, when I needed some kind of inspiration, when I needed a little bit of a, an idea or something. There was always something I could refer to. So, you know, at one point in, back in Texas, when the Beatles first came out, I had a girlfriend and she saw how infatuated I was. And at one point it, she said the phrase, is it me or the Beatles? Oh. So you can see where that went. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but it was the Beatles. Anyway, so the Beatles, you know, still kicking my butt. Still, when you go to those records, you still look, listen and, and hear new stuff because there's, there's just layers of stuff going on, layers of like, you know, okay, so now you got that lyric that you thought was this lyric and it turned out to be that other lyric. 
And now you hear this part that you thought was made up of part of, of element A and B, but it was really made up of element C. And it's like, oh God, how can, you know. And then you start to really enjoy the subtleties of Ringo's playing. Right. Ringo, who, who very much like, like what Rocco did for Tower of Power, defined their sound, you know what I mean? Very much like what James Jamerson did for Motown, just defined yes. every song with a unique part. With it. He found something to bring, and he did it all day long, you know? And Ringo is the epitome of, of all that stuff, I think, because if he's got these two or two, two or three, however you look at it, songwriters that he's basically servicing all day long in the studio. That's right. Take after take after take after take after take. Mm -hmm. And anyone could be the take. And it's not him that, that's causing it to not be the take. He's always there bringing it. And he's always not only bringing, he's bringing something that he's kind of designed for each song. He's bringing a a part that's going to take uh, come together. You know, he's just bringing something that he didn't play on any, any other song. Relax your mind, relax and float down stream. You know, just you, you name it, any song. He will play something that's not the obvious thing most of the time. And he's bringing a, a thing that defines that record. And he's doing it 27, 107 takes in a row with great humor, patience, creativity, and swagger, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know about that swagger that he has in his, in his groove. There's always a little swing in there. He was a cozy, cozy Cole fan. He was a, mm -hmm. he came from jazz, like a lot of, like the guys that invented, you know, Motown, the guys that brought, you know, came into the studio after doing their jazz gigs the night before and created Motown. Yes. You know, so a lot of the you, original. Do you know the story, man? I want to share one thing with you because I worked with um, Jeff Emmerich and uh, George Martin mm. on Apocalypse, right? And Jeff Emmerich told me, he said, they tried so hard to, to match the same bottom end sound of the Motown records out of Detroit with the UK Beatles records. And he said it drove him almost crazy that he couldn't get that same bottom that he was looking for, that he, that he had perceived out of the Motown sound for the Beatles thing. Then he started talking about, he ended up saying, maybe it was because the currency was different, that we just couldn't get it. That was where he was coming from. I've read that. I've okay. read stuff like okay. that. Okay. There's okay. a whole book by Howard Massey about the British recording studios, and yeah, he gets okay. into that. He really oh. gets deep into that. And he's also the guy who brought us the Jeff Emmerich Here, There, and Everywhere book. He got Jeff Emmerich to spill the beans about everything, and that's why that book exists. You know. Also, he was the first guy to get – he opened up Jeff when he did that book called um, Behind, the, Behind the Glass, I think, where he interviewed like a whole bunch of producers and, and engineers and stuff. George Martin, Arif, uh, yes. you know, a lot of guys. Yes. And, uh, and Jeff was one of the guys. And he, spilled, he told a few secrets about how he, in his attempts to, to reach that place that they were all digging coming from Motown, mm -hmm. you know, that's when he tried putting a speaker in front, of, in front of the bass amp to record it with and 
you know, distance, certain distance, put the C12 up and put certain distance from the speaker, from the bass amp in the studio. And they really got experimental trying to get there. And their biggest challenge, I think, was trying to get all that bottom end on a 45. Right. You know, that was a tough one. That's why, you know, that's why the fatter the groove, the fatter the sound, you know, on those vinyl records. I used to watch Arif Martin in the hallways of Atlantic go back and forth to the mastering yeah. room, you know, almost like he was mixing in the master room, trying to do just that, put more of that sound he was looking for in the groove. And, and almost like he was mixing because he would just keep fiddling with it. Arif. Looking for that sweet spot, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, brother, I want to come over to some, like, some of the things that I want to ask you about because um, you've touched so much stuff, bro. You're a music director. <laughs> Uh, I know for the Letterman show and, all, and so many things you've done, anything you want to speak about that you love in, in being a music director, anything you want to say about that? I think the thing that always surprises me every time is how much people are willing to bring it and how generous everybody is with, with what they, you know, they want to, they want to serve the music the way you do. So they want to make it easy for you. And for me, what I've done uh, to make it easy for them is I do so much homework that my, my goal is that when the artist comes in, you know, they're coming into a room full of people they've never played with before, you know, and they're used to their own bands half the time and they, they're used to being in control. Mm -hmm. But now they're coming in to sing one or two songs, right? right. So what's our job as musical director? It's, it's, to, it's to make a bed so that they come in and they lie in that bed and that's just, they feel so good. They, they can't believe it. They look around and they go, oh my God, you guys just nailed it. You know? Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah, that's yeah, the happiest exactly thing. Right. The best phrase you can hear, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay, beautiful. What about um, Love Rocks? Love, what, tell us what Love Rocks is. Okay, Love Rocks is a gorgeous concert that's put on every year to raise money for God's Love We Deliver. And God's Love We Deliver is a miraculous uh, organization that started back in the beginning of the AIDS crisis where they could see that people couldn't really, um, didn't really have the strength and the wherewithal to, to feed themselves because it was just too stressful and too taxing on their bodies to have this horrible disease. And out of the kindness of somebody's heart, they began this, this really gorgeous uh, organization where they bring um, people who are shut-ins in their, like people that can't leave their homes, um, not only food, but custom-made food. The food that they lo love or the food that they need for their particular ailment that they have you know this has gone way beyond aids into people who are who are stricken at home with all kinds of things you know and not only do they take care of the the patient but they take care of the patient's family also they feed them because those people are also completely stressed uh with taking care of their loved one you know, in a way that they can't, they're, they're neglecting themselves half the time. You know what I mean? That's right. such a typical syndrome that happens when a loving family member or friend is taking care of somebody else. 
they begin to ignore their own, you know, selves. So they, they get taken care of in, in this process. And it's super generous. They're, they're, they're doing like, I can't, I can't remember how many thousands of meals a day custom. They have like 10,000 volunteers driving around, getting this food to these people. I've been to the kitchen and it's just a, it's a wonder how much food they're putting out and with love and they love doing it, you know? So it takes a lot of resources to get this happening. So this fundraiser called Love Rocks is one of the many ways they're able to stay alive. And a good friend of mine, Greg Williamson, along with John Barbados are the, are the two main producers and Nicole Rector now is signed on as the third big, you know, partner in the production part of this concert. I mean, the names so, are incredible who we've worked with there with Robert oh, they, and David Matthews and Hart, Keith Richards, and Jackson Brown, Mavis, Joe Walsh, and C.C. Winans, and Michael McDonald, the Blind Boys, Ziggy Marl, I got to read these people, uh, Valerie Simpson, the great, Billy Gibbons, and Sam Moore, whose his birthday is today, Aaron. That's right, 85. Yeah, yeah. Cindy Lomper, Black Crows, Gary Clark Jr., and Leon Bridges, and Mark Cohen. So many folks have come to really bring aid to this, so it's wonderful. Thank you for that. So many people have come multiple times, you know, <clears throat> and they love doing it. Jackson's been there like three times. Bill Murray shows up and brings the house down. He's so funny, always amazing, amazing. Whoopi Goldberg, you know, Martin Short. Uh, one night, Martin Short, Chevy Chase, Paul Schaefer, and Bill Murray all get up and did a number. And it was just totally impromptu, and it was sick. And the place made so much money. Because Bill Murray goes out in the audience and picks people's pockets to get some more oh money. My God. He really is <laughs> aggressive about this okay he loves it okay well brother uh we're gonna wrap it up um i'm gonna ask you for any any closing word of inspiration you want to give us uh this is modern drummer who sponsors our show called upbeat but i want to bring on like you and the people who i really love and admire because you have so much wisdom you've seen so much now that you are you are our history what you've seen what you do is really our history, and we can say it's all happened so quickly. The Beatles come in our lifetime. We we heard Little Richard when we were kids. We heard we, we've seen Ray Charles. These people are history. We know we've heard Louis Armstrong. They call him the Father of Jazz. That's our lifetime. You know James Jameson. That's our lifetime. So when you stop and think about it, we are the encyclopedias going forward for these kids. So anything that you want to say about that, because that's how I see you. You're the encyclopedia. You're our history teacher. You're the cat. All I know is, man, we, we are right now we're in a place uh, where we have a chance to, you know, we, a lot of people are in confinement. A lot of people are, are worried. A lot of people are, don't know how to take advantage of this time, but I think this, it's really possible to really do some positive stuff right now, you know, and that to me, that means like I'm really taking advantage of, of being able to, you know, a lot of people have a, an iPhone. A lot of people have a computer. There's so much music you can make. And there's so many tools that are there for you to make music with and create. And just like everything else, um, and I've said this a million times, and, it, and it's never been more true, and I really, really believe in it right now is that everything is a phase. Everything is a phase. I'm a phase, you know, my life is a phase, your life is a phase. Uh, 
that little mistake that you made playing that fill, that's a phase, <laughs> you know, maybe phases can be long or short, you know, but whatever it is, it is a phase, you know, your relationship with somebody, it's a phase. If, if you're lucky enough, it's a long phase, you know, this COVID thing is a phase and it's going to be over. It's going to be over at some point. So once it, that point comes around where it, it is now in the rearview mirror, you want to be able to really look back at what you did during that time and go, yeah, I set myself up for some really good stuff. You know, I prepared, I prepared for, I'm, I'm going to be ready for when this thing's over. I'm going to have something to say. My chops are going to be better. You know, my ears are going to be more open than ever before because I spent time like really checking stuff out, but listen to some recommendations about what to check out. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot. Now I'm ready to rock. You know? Yeah. Well, will we love you? And thanks for your time today, your, your, your inspiration. And uh, I hope all the young kids and all the people around the world will take time when this interview airs to check it out and, and listen to you and learn by you. Because I'm telling you, the people you've been around and the, and the, and the air you've been able to breathe is rarefied. Rarefied. But I'm a greedy man and I want some more. And you're greedy. I'm a greedy man. And, and you're going to get some more. <laughs> and you're going to get some more. <laughs> People who do. Your homework all done. Come on. <laughs> hey, man, I can't wait till we play again. Okay. Yeah. And I love you so much. Thank you for you, brother. Thank you, Will. And, and Sam Dream, too. Okay. <laughs> Now it's time for the shop talk section of the episode. This is Mike Dawson, managing editor at Modern Drummer. And this week, we're going to continue checking out the Stock Sweeney Pure Series snare drums. Last episode, I dropped in the video for the Pure Elm. Um, I feel like I should go ahead and share the others, too. So this week, we're going to talk about the Pure Oak. So these are all 5.5 by 14. The Pure Series are all 5.5 by 14 solid shell snares. There's three of them. There's Ash, there's Oak, and there's Elm. They are... Uh, like I said, solid shell, steam bent shell. They uh, really are designed to just accentuate the purest, that's why they're called pure, sound of the wood. So there's very little done to the wood that would affect the sound. It's a natural finish, um, classic single point contact lug. So minimal you know, effect to the shell itself. Um, the reinforcement rings are actually shaped into the shell, so they're milled into the wood rather than uh, being another piece of wood that's glued in, which also helps accentuate the tone. So these are really, really amazing drums. The Elm was the one I featured last week, so I thought it was the most unique. The one that I think um, you should definitely take a look at if you're looking for a pretty much a flawless studio or live drum. It's the Oak. It has a slightly drier sound than the others, and it has a little bit more crack to the attack. Um, it sounded really nice tuned low. The overtones, it was dry, so the overtones kind of, you know, cut themselves off naturally. I didn't need to use any, um, you know, a ton of muffling or anything like that. So uh, this is one that um, I really think you should check out. If you haven't checked out Oak Drums, this would be one of the finest examples of an Oak Drum. So here it is. This is the Doc Sweeney Pure Series 5.5 by 14 Oak Series Snare.
Thank you, everybody, for watching this week's Modern Drummer Podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode exclusively on Podcast One. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening and watching. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.